I'm a trustee with Redeemer and got to know Greg when he uh, came over to the UK and was working with Grace Church in, uh, I think, 2015, uh, you know, was when he started. And so it's been uh, just a phenomenal experience to be part in a small way behind the scenes, helping to make this mission a reality. Um, as we start, if you've got your Acts 8 reading open, if you're following on a phone or in a Bible, uh, please have that where you can see it. And um, I'm using the NIV version as well, so the translations, I think Liz was reading from the English Standard Version, um, perhaps were you? Or... Oh, right, okay. I just noticed it, different translations and different editions have slightly different words, but we're all on the, the same thing. So we're going to spend some time in Acts 8. Um, if you were with me on Friday morning and before work came for a bit of a coffee, came into Pret on Cross Street in town, you would have met Jeff, who's a friend of Tamsin's at the back as well. And Jeff would have been sitting at the table with his latte, his bacon roll, and a Bible. Now, if it was possible to jump into Marty McFly's DeLorean time machine and go back three years, and you were in the same prep on the same morning, you would have seen Jeff with his latte, bacon roll, but no Bible. In fact, if you'd gone over and said, you know what, in three years' time, you will be here having a Bible study, he would have choked on his bacon, laughed and told you to jog on. He is the least likely, the most unlikely person of his own admission to follow Jesus. It's interesting that his colleague, Barnes, who invited him to the initial Ministry to Business breakfast that he came to back in September 2016, said, if ever there was a person in the office who was least likely to come to faith in Jesus, it's Jeff. And yet, and yet, God is at work saving the most unlikely of people for life with him through Jesus. Let me say that again. God is at work saving the most unlikely people for life in all its fullness with him through Jesus. And I did ask Jeff, are you happy for me to share this on Sunday morning? He went, yeah, go for it. <laughs> in fact, every one of you here who follows Jesus as your God and Saviour is an unlikely candidate for encountering Jesus. Isn't that true? Think of the barriers, think of the resistance. Even myself, I grew up in a church-going Christian family. In fact, I used to think, oh, I don't have that really cool testimony, you know, the sort of rock and roll and all of that, and then I came to Jesus, big thing. In fact, I've got a deeper one, because I was anaesthetised against the gospel going to church. It was the most boring experience ever. I actually were looking for ways to get out of going to church and say, I've done the God thing, leave me alone. Yeah? So... We are all unlikely. The great news is we're therefore all miracles of God's handiwork. Isn't that amazing? And thankfully, we don't need Marty McFly's DeLorean time machine to learn how powerful gospel movements under God are in history as God brings people to worship him because we've got Dr. Luke's eyewitness record right in front of us that shows the Holy Spirit working out meetings between this guy Philip, a Jewish Christian, and this nameless, 
Ethiopian, actually the Chancellor of the Exchequer, coming back from Jerusalem. And it's an encounter that celebrates the reality that the risen Jesus is bringing people from every nation and tribe and culture and background to himself. Well, how? How does that happen? That's what we're going to dig into. And it seems to be, quite simply, by someone sharing and explaining the saving work of Jesus, which was achieved in his death on a cross, in his glorious resurrection to new life. And they did it as they simply read the Bible together. So, let me give you a little bit of background in Acts. I know you haven't looked at it as a book, I don't think, in your sermon series with Greg at the moment. And some of you have probably read it, but let me just try and give you a little bit of a where we are in, in Acts 8, okay? So this book, as I said, is written by a guy called Dr. Luke, who followed Paul around. You can read his Volume 1 work, imaginatively titled Luke, just a few books earlier in the Old Testament, uh, New Testament, and Luke talks about Jesus' life, his miracles, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and his coming back to life. That's Volume 1. Volume 2, Acts, is, well, what happens next? And Luke is showing us the risen Lord Jesus, who has now gone back to his heavenly throne room, which at the moment is currently veiled from us. It's there, but we can't see it. And he is directing his mission across the globe. And there's one key verse. If you've got your Bibles open and you just want to flick back to chapter 1 of Acts, so a few pages back... Chapter 1, verse 8, you'll see there this verse that Jesus gives. You see, Jesus appears in, Luke, in, in Acts chapter 1, and he only hangs around for nine verses, then he's gone. Um, and you can see there in verse 8 this summary, and let me paraphrase it. Jesus' last words to his team of friends and followers who he's sending out on this mission is, Be my witnesses, tell everyone everything about me. Start in Jerusalem, then go to your northern Sam- neighbour Samaria. Uh, then go throughout the region of Judea, but don't stop there. Get out to the ends of the earth with my good news, and you won't be on your own. You will have power to do this because my Holy Spirit is with you. That's a bit of a paraphrase of that verse 8, but if you want to keep thinking what's Acts about, go to chapter 1, verse 8. And you see, Jesus didn't stay around for a Q&A session. He didn't set up some strategy meetings because his people with his spirit will figure that stuff out. It's a creative, entrepreneurial, get out there and have a go. And by chapter 8, within a few months, there's been a significant growth in Jesus's family, his church. And the church that was meeting in Jerusalem, like the epicentre of all things to do with God where there are several thousand people now worshipping and saying, yeah, we follow this risen Jesus, there's a serious problem. A massive persecution has just hit them. Now, Stephen, who was one of the church leaders, is stoned for death, and you can read that in chapter 7, for basically proclaiming that Jesus is God, and he's the risen Lord. You've got to worship him. And amazingly, as he dies, even Stephen, he follows Jesus' example. He prays for forgiveness for his enemies. He walked the talk. He's the sort of leader we need in the church. But he's gone. Why did you kill him off, God? You know? Here's the interesting thing. Even though Paul, who we read about later, was standing there approving of his death and going, yeah, let's kill some more Christians. 
he's another candidate for being an unlikely believer. You read that later in Acts. The persecution, chapter 8, verse 1, just flick back there, becomes a catalyst for scattering the Christians out. Exactly what Jesus said he wanted to happen. And what, what we see in verse 4 is that God is directing this persecution for a much greater purpose. Yes, it's a horrible thing that's happened, but the Lord is in control. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah, God's king there. Can you see Jesus' mission action plan is entering phase two. Get out of Jerusalem, go to Samaria and beyond. And so enter Philip, chapter 8. He was also one of the co-workers, one of the seven helpers working with Stephen, who's one of the guys in charge, basically, of the Jerusalem Food Bank. But he's also very handy at sharing Jesus' good news with people. He wasn't afraid to preach to crowds when it was needed. And God used him to do some miraculous healings. Now, understand, Philip wasn't a superhero Christian. I don't know how you feel about that. When you read the Bible, sometimes you go, oh, there's no way I could ever do any of this because they're so awesome. You know, they seem superhero. You know, he wasn't part of an elite team that had been training for this moment like an Olympic swimmer, like that Adam Peaty guy, you know, he keeps smashing his own records. He seems more dolphin than man, doesn't he? But if you think of Philip as a superhuman, uh, superhero Christian, we're not in step with Acts. You see, the hero of Acts is just one, the risen Lord Jesus. It's his mission. And yet, he graciously chooses to work through everyday, normal, faithful, spirit-filled Christians, people like you guys meeting here, who go on Jesus' mission wherever he directs. They're just open to following his lead. And clearly, God the Father, Son and Spirit are working in this next encounter. Did you pick up the clues as it was being read by? Let's just have your eyes down in chapter 8. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south! Verse 27, on the way, Phil meets this Ethiopian who had just been to Jerusalem to worship, who just so happened to be reading the scroll of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who just so happened to be reading a passage that pointed to Jesus, the suffering servant. Ooh, I wonder who's behind this. Verse 29, look, the Holy Spirit prompts Phil to get alongside the chariot. Verse 39, uh, 29, sorry, is the chariot thing. Verse 39, the Holy Spirit whether in a miraculous way or just as an abrupt exit, moves Philip onto his next preaching assignment. Now, some of this is obviously totally unique to what was going on in that period of time, AD 33-34, in Jerusalem and that region, with Philip. Yes, it is totally unique. We shouldn't necessarily expect to see the same things working exactly the same way if we do this stuff. But... It's not like following one of Mary Berry's recipes for making a delicious cake. Just follow these steps and you get what's in the photo, yeah? Don't, don't think like that too much, but think there are principles, definitely. Stuff that can be applied. So firstly, Christians, do you trust that God is working today in unseen ways? Are you confident that the, the Father, the Son and Spirit are bringing people together at the right time and place to encounter him. Moving from Dulcimer this morning is a frustration, yes. But is it out of control? No. What does it teach us? Dependence. 
We're people on mission, not confined to a building. We have a God who's in control. Do we believe that this Father, the risen Lord, is putting people in the right place, right time to hear about him? Do you know that God has put each one of you uniquely in situations, whether it's with family, friends, colleagues, co-workers, neighbours, so that you in some way can help them understand something more about Jesus, his life-changing truth, his loving, saving grace? And you can do that through your actions and words. Are you praying for people consistently? What are the things they're facing in life that you can bring before the Lord? Where do they need to see and taste and encounter his loving grace, his blessing? How are you playing your part in saying, I will do whatever I can, Lord, firstly in prayer, to see them know you were there for them? Are you cultivating eager expectation this week what's coming up tomorrow where will you be who will you be with this week are you walking into the next week going god you're there you're going to provide opportunities help me see them and it may be the long haul so it's not going to be a flashbang or some experience maybe it's even in the smallest of distinctive ways that you will help nudge someone a little bit closer one a couple of millimetres closer to Jesus. <coughs> now in June, um, as part of my work with Ministry to Business, which is an outreach and a way of both encouraging Christians, but also bridge building and uh, giving opportunities for people in their working week to hear about the good news, we did a dinner at the start of June. It was one of our more evangelistic dinners. Um, the title, quite clearly, Why Bother With the Bible? And we had a, a friend sharing their experience of reading God's word and the light switching on and then sharing that with other colleagues, um, just reading the Bible together. I'd invited a few friends who wouldn't identify as Christians. One of them was telling me a week after the dinner, when we met up for a bit of a how did you find it and catch up, he shared that throughout that day he had an utter compulsion he needed to be at the dinner. And this is a guy who's a corporate financier, he's, he's pretty high powered, He's moved into third sector work, so working with charities and stuff. But this is a guy who has a lot. He's got everything sorted in many ways, very successful. But during that day, he had this compulsion, I must get to that dinner. And he had a significant business meeting just beforehand. And the guy was obviously just blowing hot air, This the guy leading the meeting. And here was Stuart thinking, right, I must get there. I've told them I've got to leave at six. And the time's just you know, pushed on and pushed on. 6.15, he's like, right, just got up and left. And he was sharing with me, just throughout the day, there were the, these little things that all added up. And then the talk. And he met a friend at the dinner who was also not a believer. He didn't realise he was going. In fact, this was the only ministry to business event they've ever been to at the same point in time and were able to catch up. And it was just like, wow, where did that come from? And all these little things. And Stuart said to me, it feels like there's a God who, is definitely, who definitely knows me. That personal, just stuff going on during the day. But he's in a place to admit that. Now hear me, I'm not saying he then went, oh, I want to pray the prayer of commitment and Pete, can you baptise me in the cafe just filling a bit of water over me? No, no, no. But, there's that movement, isn't there? That nudging. 
Amazing. God is still at work drawing people to himself. Now, as the Holy Spirit opens hearts and minds, we see that that movement, even over months, years, happens. And we should be expectant of that. I wonder whether the Ethiopian eunuch felt God was on his case as he's travelling back. What do we know about this spiritual seeker? Here are a few highlights as you look in the passage with me and see where I'm getting this. Firstly, he's high-ranking, we're told. A black African civil servant in a position of significant influence. He's in charge of the Ethiopian economy. If he was in the job today, our Chancellor, Sajid Javid, would be on the phone discussing trade and investment deals with him and probably urging him to think Britain is great, we need you, <laughs> yeah? Um, he is a God-fearing man, we find out in the passage. He's from an area of what we know as Sudan and Ethiopia. And interestingly, for people in the first century, so the guys who would be hearing this and reading this firsthand, that was considered the ends of the earth, a bit like Oldham is to Chilton, you know? Um, <laughs> no, that's only a joke. Um, but it's that far, it's like, this is miles, miles and miles away. You know, wow, ends of the earth stuff. And you should be going, ting, ting, wait a sec, Jesus said something about that in chapter 1, verse 8. Yeah, ends of the earth. We know this foreign official wanted to worship God in Israel, the God of Israel. Verse 28 makes clear he's planned a trip to Jerusalem, whether it was work or pleasure, whether it was out of his own personal money. He's now heading home, having gone to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. That was a, a 500-mile journey which would have taken several days back in those days. This guy was a serious truth seeker. He would have been travelling, not on his own, but with an entourage, maybe at considerable personal cost to him. And not only that, but he has this scroll of Isaiah, which wouldn't have been cheap. He's probably shelled out a lot of his own money to buy one of these scrolls. This guy was committed. We'd say he's got skin in the game, definitely, yeah? He's reading and studying and asking, searching questions about God's word. He was looking for answers to life. He had more than a sneaking suspicion that there's more to this one life that we've been given. Perhaps Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7 were ringing in his ears. Just, you know, a few chapters on and on a scroll it would have just been a few lines. Just keep reading and, and moving on like that. And the verse is there. Just listen to this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to God and he will freely pardon. Wow. Wait a second. Are you for real? True seeker. Is, is there pardon? Is there a seeking? Can he hear? <coughs> wow. Is that forgiveness for real? But there's a tragic irony here too. This open-hearted God-fearer came from the ends of the earth to worship at a temple that he couldn't even enter. The inner courts, where all the action happened, had a massive no-entry sign for this Ethiopian. He was not acceptable. The temple guards, like assertive security at an airport or the, the bouncers at the pub door, would have stopped him going any further. Not only does straight off his distinctive skin colour mark him out as a Gentile, there was the matter of him being a eunuch. 
Now, I don't know how that conversation would have gone at the door. You know, is it a pat down and, hey, what's going on down there? <laughs> Seriously, but I don't know how the temple guard found out, but this chancellor of the exchequer had endured castration. You didn't think that word would come out on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Boom, just let's put it out there. It was a common practice in royal households. And they did it primarily to show allegiance and loyalty, but also not to have, uh, to, to protect the female royalty. You know, brass tacks on the table. It was like, this is how we make sure people are protected. Ouch. This man, though, seriously, is unable to have kids. His whole producing life, no, mate, it's gone. You're dead. You're locked into service to this royal family. This is who you belong to. Can you imagine? Spiritually, castration meant he was cut off from the assembly of God's people. He couldn't come into God's holy presence. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 makes that clear. And it isn't that God's got, you know, issues with people like that. And he's just going, no, I can't be bothered with you. It, he's a holy God. How do you approach the holy God if you're incomplete? It, it, if you're not fully human in that sense. And then you can't even com meet him like that anyway because of your sin. It was just another sign of being cut off. Now, just imagine the crushing disappointment after days of travel. The money he's paid out to arrive at the temple and told, no, you're not coming in, mate. Sorry, there are no burnt offerings for you for sin. Not even, no, no, no quick wave offering and a quick hallelujah. No. Denied. Stay out. Imagine arriving at a stadium to see your favourite team or band and being told, no, you've got to stand in the car park. Say your prayers from your chariot. Wow. That's harsh, isn't it? Think of, would you do that if Dulcimer was open and someone's coming in? No, no, we don't want you today. Yeah? And as an Anglican Church of England minister, I know our buildings, which can be a great asset, can also be the barrier that put people off going in. Because they feel like, oh, they're too oh, scary and stuff like this. And yet, actually, we all face that. We were all sinners cut off. There was a massive no entry sign to God. No matter what we did. And here he is reading scripture on the way home from this 700 year old message in his time. It was, as I was written, 700 years before Jesus was on the earth. So... And then there's this strange Jewish bloke jogging alongside his chariot. Hi, do you understand what you're reading? Sorry, what? My donkey's teething? You know, you're just like, who is this Jewish guy running alongside the chariot? Um, I, I, I did think, actually, the running thing, it would be an interesting leader test, wouldn't it? I, in all the church planting tests and ordained ministry tests, there's never been the running for the bus, car or train test to read the Bible with someone. You know, how fast is your 200 metre sprint? Um, that would be just funny to watch in an interview, if entirely irrelevant. But, but can you see, Philip's question, yeah, just kicks off a life-changing Bible study, doesn't it? Isn't it amazing? Don't ignore the sheer simplicity of this moment. God is at work bringing this foreign royal, royal official who has not only experienced the pain of being physically cut off, but spiritually cut off, into the life with God. God brings this Christian believer alongside this seeker to guide, to explain God's word in the Bible so that 
the very first Ethiopian in the New Testament can know God and be saved. Wow! Isn't that mind-blowing? As part of my prep for this sermon, I asked a friend, Paul, who works in the co-working space with me. He's again, isn't a Christian. I asked him if he would help me with my prep and look at this passage together. So we're in the cafe reading through Acts 8. He's never read it before or whatever. And um, I just wanted his observations, his questions, the things that stood out, surprised him, shocked him, all of that. And interestingly, gave him five minutes to read through it. And he just went straight into these verses here, the ones from Isaiah. That's what he honed in on. Just like, what is going on here? And he'd already scribbled out. He thinks it's about Jesus and this, that and the other. And like, yes, Paul has some background. He's got some knowledge that he can already start piecing things together. But it isn't personally something he, he holds to. But it was fascinating that here, the passage being read makes so clear that we have a saviour in Jesus who, like a sheep, was slaughtered. Dying on a cross to forgive sin. And what Philip would have done is just have the scroll open. They would have been looking, like Liz read out, the whole passage. They wouldn't have just gone, let's just look at those two verses. It's Whenever you see it in Acts like this, think wide. It's the whole thing that they would be engaging with. This person, this suffering servant, Jesus, suffered injustice of a sham trial, but didn't protest. My friend Paul was quite struck by that. He said it's like a sign of strength in the face of shame. Like, he's not this celebrity figure. He, he just takes it. And then as we looked at the whole chapter of Isaiah 53, it was interesting to see Paul just go, yeah, you cannot say this is anything but one person coming in and taking our place. It's as clear as that. So who is that person who does it? The punishment that brought us peace, verse 5 of Isaiah 53, is <coughs> him. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? That the risen Lord Jesus chooses to work relationally and simply through ordinary people gathered around his work. That Ethiopian needed someone to explain Jesus to him. Did you notice how he said that? How can I understand if no one explains? The word for explain there in the original is guide. Literally, how can I have someone if they don't guide me through it? That word is used again in John's Gospel, John 16, where Jesus is promising to give his Holy Spirit to his 12 apostles to help them. He says this, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth, John 16, verse 13. So you see, when you open up the Bible, you're not just reading another book. You're reading something that the creator of the universe has said, you know, this is the way you experience me. This is where I speak to you. This is where you encounter me. And you will read words and go, what? And seriously, Deuteronomy 23 talks about chopping off what's it. So, you know, the Holy Spirit is there saying, yeah, it, it, make, it does make sense. Keep reading. I'm speaking to you through it. I will lead you into saving truth. You see, we talk about the Bible being sufficient for salvation as Christians. What we're saying is you've got everything in here you need to know, to know God personally, to be assured you're going to his kingdom, to eternal life in his kingdom, to know that nothing ever has to cut you off from him. doesn't mean that you don't have to read science, because this isn't trying to tell you how to... Um, you know, do quantum physics. This isn't trying to tell you how to bake the perfect cake. 
But it is sufficient for everything that's necessary to know God and be saved. To live life with the creator. And isn't it great that what God says is, I'm not just going to whap you as you read it and go, boom, oh right, I now know it as if I've put a USB stick in my brain and downloaded the information. I want you to do it in community. I want you to do it with other people. The Holy Spirit will lead you. He's going to guide you. And you need each other to know this truth. Well, as we come to the end, I think it is really amazing. You see a response here that's off the chart, don't you? This Ethiopian, yeah, I want to... I'm in! Wow! I'm not cut off! This, I have a suffering saviour who, who's brought me back to God. Oh, I want to... Let's get baptised now. And we're not told what Philip shared. I think that's deliberate, actually. I think if we then had, you know, in a very English way, Paul and I were discussing this over coffee. It's like, what, what did he talk about? Just those verses just go, oh, and he started the, that passage and told him the good news about Jesus. You know, the ministers in us just want to go, uh, can we have the uh, footnote that tells us what he talked about, what questions, how he did it, what other passages he went to, any funny jokes, illustrations that we can then use every time we meet someone. Yeah, because that's what we do, wouldn't we? We want the how-to book. Jesus is like, no, depend on me. It'll be different in every situation. You, you will have different family, friends, colleagues or whatever who come with different questions. Some have never read the Bible, so how are you going to start there? You know, So it's not a how-to guide. And yet it is a guide, it is a go-do-it, have a try. What's fascinating is that I reckon Philip would have opened, carried on with his scroll and said, you know what, don't take my word for it, mate. God really does restore and save. Just look a few columns on. Isaiah 56, and we read there this promise, Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 8. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, I, I can't produce life. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants... These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Verse 8, the sovereign Lord declares, who, who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Oh my life. Just a few columns on, there's a promise saying the Lord God is going to bring in foreigners and eunuchs. 700 years before this guy was even on the earth. Can you imagine? That is a word, isn't it? I know you. I know what's going on in your life. I know you want restoration. I know you feel excluded. And I'm doing something to bring you in. I, that was always my plan. You're always there. Come to me. Wow. Can you imagine? No wonder the unit got excited. Just a few columns on. You're in. You're in. I've done it. Do you trust me? That message has just gone global. Jesus said, get, that's what we're about. Get out there with this. So, what do we do? Philip cracks on and carries on to Caesarea. 
Do you know, interestingly, we only meet Philip again in verse 21, in chapter 21, verse 8. And he's doing a bit of hospitality like this. He's got Paul in his house, the apostle who's come to faith, and they're having a bit of a meet-up just before Paul goes back off to Rome or Jerusalem somewhere. Um, and we never hear, we don't hear any more cool stories about Philip. Yeah? It's like he carries on preaching stuff like this, but this and what happened earlier in chapter 8 in Samaria is all we know about him. And you think, wow, that's really cool. Because it wasn't like Philip was going, oh, can I put in some more cool stories? And if only these things happen again. No, I just carry on serving the Lord. I don't need big headlines. This stuff happened and, you know, it's in the Lord's hands. Doesn't mean I go, oh, if only I had a few more, like, chariot moments, wouldn't it be cool and my Christian life would be awesome? No, just carry on serving the Lord. Here's the stuff to, to be encouraged by. And, and it reminds us when I say, so what do we do with this? And you probably already teetering on the, oh my gosh, he's going to guilt me into getting out there and telling people about Jesus. And I really, oh man, I don't want to do that. And I know how you feel, but you really do want to do that. You've got to do it naturally. You do it as God's created you. There is no real step-by-step plan on it. There are great resources out there. The word one-to-one I find really useful. But it takes years. I've had friends who I've known for five years. I've gone, would you like to read the Bible with me? Bit of John's Gospel. And they go, no, thank you. And then five years later, one is. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Just keep praying. Keep opening, serving, loving people. But do you know what? It isn't what are you going to do. There is that. But it really isn't that. It is, what has Jesus done? Yeah? God is drawing people to himself. He is at work doing that. And he says, join in. But it isn't all on you. Jesus has done it. He's in control. He's leading us. And isn't that a relief? God is at work doing it. He's put you uniquely amongst people who need to experience his loving truth. Enjoy that. Do it from that place of grace. Do it from that place of joy. Do it from that place of expectation. Not guilt, not fear, not dull duty, not, oh, good, oh man, put it on my to-do list and uh, it just keeps getting knocked down because Tesco's shopping online is even more enjoyable than trying to do evangelism or whatever. No, it comes from a place of joy, just that daily rhythm of being with the Lord, letting people see your life. And you don't have to panic because... The Lord Jesus is at work, saving people. So, you do this as community as well. And I know, you know, at Redeemer, you've got your values front and centre. And Greg hammers this every time, doesn't he? He speaks about missional communities. You do this together. You're not alone. And yeah, you might have the chariot moment where it is just you and one other person. But you've got a whole bunch of family and friends praying for you. A whole bunch of people after that you can just be honest with and say, you know what? That felt a bit of a car crash, but oh, and they didn't do this. And, you know, and go, yeah, cool, let's pray. No guilt. No, oh, well, I had one and 10 people just said yes yeah, straight away. And, you know, yeah, I had to baptise them. I hope you're OK with that. No, it's not. It's not a competition. We're on his mission. The Lord has done it all. And perhaps today, maybe you're here and you're still wrestling with big questions. Maybe you would say, you know what? I'm kind of like your mate Paul and Stuart, who you mentioned earlier. I. I don't know this Jesus and I'm, I'm really sceptical. But would you be willing to have a look further? Would you be willing just to maybe just start in Luke or John and just read a bit about who Jesus is and come with your searching questions? Brilliant. 
not asking you to sign up for church or anything else. Just have a look at who this person is. You know what? I want you to hear this at the end. It is not all on you. It really isn't. You have a risen Lord whose mission it is and he invites you to take part. Jesus loves you. He has called you. He has asked you to join in his mission. It's happening today. It's happening this week. And it will continue to happen for the rest of your life. And it flows out of the loving approval. You are not cut off from a God who says you are mine. Let's pray.